Emily. Caitlin. Guess what? I, I have so many guesses. I don't even know where to start. Oh my gosh. What popped into your head right away? Just like what? Like my first was how much have you slept the past three nights? Oh, okay. Well, we can get into that. But I was going to say this is season 11's podcast finale. Oh, I, uh, you know, my, one of my words of 2022 is bittersweet. And I don't know that this is bittersweet only because we have an amazing slew of programming coming up for season 12. Yes, we do. That is going to be, you know, amazing releases post the festival. Yes. So it's more in my heart just a pause but it is an interesting thing to like we've moved on from season 11 so long ago just with wrap up and getting our heads in season 12 Mm -hmm. but to like really finish off season 11 and put the rest of it out into the universe you know it's march 15th so (laughs) Uh i love a count on the fingers i don't want to do the actual map math but it's about two and a half months until season 12 podcast will come out after that uh, but people should come and see it live. But I think it's kind of exciting to kind of, with that amount of time left, have a bit of a button of fully putting season 11 to bed. I will say we are working on a special podcast show that might fill the time between now and June 1st. The festival's June 1st through 4th, for those that don't know. Um, so there will potentially still be some more podcasts. I'm going to say there will be, there not will even be. potentially, there will be some more podcasts. We are trying it out. Give us some grace more on that later. Um, but our finale final, <laughs> I was yep. like, I'm final sorry. and finale together, say, which is two weird words to combine. I mean, well, they're also the same, the same word. <laughs> I know, which is what made it even stranger. Final alley, um, is powerful TV presented by the television Academy. What's really cool about this one is we do a version of this every year with the Television Academy, but it changes based on who's on it. It's based on their honorees, um, which are social impact and representation and and impact on television in a variety of different categories. Um, I can say that the Television Academy is coming back this year, which is always very exciting. Um, And it's a partnership we're very, very proud of beyond the panel they support us in a lot of different ways, and I am trying to figure out how to become a part of the academy. <laughs> I know you are. You're on a mission, which I really appreciate. I feel like we should be able to. My husband said, like, why do you want to be a part of it? I was like, so that I can vote. I know. I mean, why do you want to be a part of anything? So you can vote. Yeah. I, I mean, mean the parties might be nice or whatever. Blank but, statement to say. But yes, I. I want my voice yes, to be heard. Yes. And I want to go back in time and vote for Orphan Black. <laughs> is that the that the if you I mean, go back in time is that where you would love. put your I just really remember that year being like what has happened why was this not acknowledged like season one I mean Tatiana, Tatiana Maslany oh my like, gosh she should have won literally every award possible I for that role every those roles member. not even that role all the roles that she played I know um but this panel has someone that we met virtually and then got to meet in person and really do love Robin Thede, creator, showrunner, writer, EP, and cast of a Black Lady Sketch Show. Emmy Award winning. Yeah. Black Lady Sketch Show. Uh, Sierra Teller Ornales, co-creator, showrunner, EP, writer of Rutherford Falls. Also RIP. Guys, it ended with a bit of a cliffhanger for me, and I'm really upset about it. I uh, We don't have to like go down this road, but I feel that... Peacock is obviously having a moment right now. They are. And which I'm also happy for them. It's so much so, but I think there's been conversations that the execs have been having about they've had such great shows, but just 
haven't had the audience to support those shows and now they're starting to get the audience and that unfortunately there were some casualties of shows that they say honestly just like came out too soon yeah and I think that this was one of those shows I really wish somebody else would have picked it up I really enjoyed it so much so Michael Gray Eyes showed up on 1923 I really don't like the storyline that he is a part of I'm so sorry but I watch it because he's got a great hat and I really like him. <laughs> I like the show. Solid reason. I, I watch, Solid reason to watch a show. I watch the show every week and there's a storyline that keeps me. There's a storyline and Helen Mirren that keep me tuning in. That's it. And Michael Gray Eyes just supporting him and his great hat. Um. Anyway, and ATX favorite mm-hmm. family member, Jason Kadams creator showrunner ep writer of as we see it which is also r.i.p guys this is really hard (laughs) um but p.s jason does have a new show on apple tv plus called dear edward so maybe he'll be back to talk about that i'm very sad now but everyone should go watch these shows to be fair a black lady sketch show isn't it's still it's still on we you are referencing one of the shows from last Last week week. that we talked about but then it was two in a row i know i know it is it's just a lot just i don't want anyone to get the wrong impression that a black lady sketch sketch show's doing great yep robin thede's leaving her best life i'm i'm sure sierra and jason are too but i just am sad because rutherford falls and as we see it were two great shows and Part of them being great shows and the subject matters they hit are why they were given honors by the Television Academy and part of clearly this panel. So anyway, yeah. all full circle. All full circle. Well, we're basically, I mean, it's a finale. I feel like I should add a little more here to the finale. I mean, this is moderated by Disney. <laughs> I should know Emily I'm doing a dancing. dance. I don't know what else to add, so I'm doing a dance that no one can see, but it's I'm doing it. It's a finale dance. It's a finale dance. I have a dance for everything these days. I mean, I guess it's not super sad. We're going to be back really soon with a very special podcast and June 1st through 4th. Mm-hmm. Come see the Television Academy. Probably at least one of these people will be there. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you which one. You guess. Here's Send us thing. a tweet. <laughs> Shameless plug. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in the subjects that we discuss at the mm-hmm. festival and the shows that we have. So you should right now go to atxfestival.com. There's some programming on the website that there you is. should go check out and know that much more is coming. So if you're not signed up for the newsletter, you should also go sign up for the newsletter. One, you'll get information on the programming coming out. And on future podcasts Mm -hmm. that you don't want to miss. And just other fun info that we are sharing about what we were watching and what we are discovering. And uh, all of the fun stuff that we talk about at the festival and year round. You can hear it on a regular basis. That's my shameless plug. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Don't be. Yeah, it's shameless. No shame. No shame. Um, Well, enjoy our rock star moderator, Danielle Terciano with Powerful TV presented by the Television Academy. See you soon. Today's episode is brought to you by Equinox Hotels. Welcome to Equinox Hotel, Hudson Yards, the oasis of New York City. For those that want it all, Equinox Hotel has created the possibility for people to maximize their potential, a reimagined sleep experience built to optimize and energize. Their sleep chambers are built around the pillars of dark, quiet, and cool dark all lights have been eliminated on outlets and electronics and double curtains have been built into the windows to zero moonlight effect quiet 
Walls have super high transmission class ratings with vestibules built between rooms and cool. Room temperature is set based on scientific studies conducted by sleep scientists from Columbia and Berkeley's. Equinox Hotel is the first brand to partner with doctors to optimize your sleep. Cocoa mat mattresses from Greece made with organic products such as dried coconut and real horsehair to absorb perspiration and cool your body in your sleep. Health is the new wealth. Be their guest and enjoy complimentary access to their 60,000 square foot Equinox Fitness Club, including indoor-outdoor pool and group fitness classes, or simply relax in their spa. Enjoy local and real cuisine from Electric Lemon, and during the summer months, retreat to the outdoor terrace, the perfect place to escape and connect while sipping on their classic and inspired cocktails while taking in views of the Hudson River and city. They look forward to welcoming you to their high-performance, modern, luxury lifestyle experience. Book your experience now on equinox-hotels.com. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Danielle. I'm an entertainment editor. I have been covering TV for about a dozen years, and I feel like we're in a really special time in TV because shows like the three that we're about to talk about, they are shows that I don't know that would have made it all on the air a few years ago, let alone all at the same time. So, um, Sarah, I want to start with you because as we're talking about powerful TV, you know, one of the things that the Television Academy is recognizing um, through their Television Academy Honors Program is exceptional television that impacts society through thoughtful, powerful, and innovative storytelling. But I would argue that, you know, a big part of it is also groundbreaking. Um, and it's groundbreaking for Rutherford Falls to be the first Native American sitcom, Native writers, Native directors. But can you tell me a little bit about the process to say, I want to make this show, I've got years of credits under my belt, but is Hollywood ready for this and what you experienced? Sure. Um, before I start, my name is Sierra Taylor-Nellis. I'm a member of the Navajo Nation. I'm Edgewater clan born for the Mexican people. And thank you so much for having me here today. Um, yeah, we're the first in the States. <laughs> I feel like I need to give you air horns after that every time. Uh, that would be Amazing. so great at the next chapter house meeting. Someone's like, Perfect. Um, no, so um, yeah, I mean, I've I've always wanted to tell native stories. I've worked in television comedy for almost 12 years now, and um, I think we've all been really ready to tell these types of stories. In terms of them being ready, um, you know, I, I really love television, and as a staff writer working my way up, anytime there was any kind of like advice someone would give. You'd have, you know, in network television, you have upper level writers who would sell their pilots and leave and go make them, and then a lot of them wouldn't get picked up. They'd have to come back to the room, and they would just kind of post-mortem, like they wouldn't make eye contact with you, but they would just be like, I did this wrong, and I did this wrong. And everyone was like, trying to help them, but I was just like writing down like all this stuff. <laughs> like, you know, and so when I had the opportunity to, to meet and um, work with Mike Schur on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and at Helms, we developed something together. When they came with this sort of half idea of Nathan Rutherford and that, I, I had so many ideas and stories from my life, but I'd also had like a decade of working in the industry to really know like, oh, I know what to do here, I know what to do here, because I feel like I'd just been sort of like built up from a, from a little tiny plant to like, you know, doing the job. Yeah. Now, who is this Mike Schur? <laughs> He's the sort of an unknown upstart. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's you'll hear yeah, maybe, he'll, maybe he'll be okay. Yeah, he'll be fine. <laughs> And, and Jason, first of all, Jason is a three-time television honors winner. So I think hey. for Parenthood and Friday Night Lights. 
So I think we need to acknowledge that. Um, but Jason, I mean, as we see it, because it centers characters with autism, we've seen, certainly in parenthood, we've seen these themes to some degree. Um, because you had this pedigree of these other shows, do you feel like that helped you convince Hollywood that this was the right time for this show? Yeah, um, maybe a little bit. I, I really, the way that I came to the show was from such a personal place. I have a son who's on the spectrum. Our, my son was becoming the age of the characters in the show. The, 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 char the characters on the show are in their 20s, they're just starting their lives. And they had, you know, with, along with the normal challenges of being 20s and starting your life, they had other, they had the obstacle of, of, of who, who they are and how they, and how they are in the world. And I was looking at my son and I was um, thinking, I was wondering what his future was gonna be like. And, um, you know, and um, so this was a story that I was, you know, I, I had a professor in college who, you know, the, the adage about writing is write what you know. And I had a professor in college who said, write what you're learning about. And I've always remembered that. And this was the thing that I was, that was on my mind, that I was thinking about, that at times was keeping me up at night thinking about it. And so this was the story that I had to tell. And I feel like that always helps you <laughs> when you're pitching. It always helps you when you want to tell a story in a way that maybe hasn't been told exactly the way, that way um, before, the way that I told, you know, in parenthood I did it, but I wanted to do it differently in this time. And, you know, um, you go out and you, um, you pitch it, and um, all you need is one place to kind of, um, you know, be like um, with you on it. Feel like, you know, this is, feel like they want to tell the story as well. Um, it was a lot, the, the path to doing it, I will say, like for example, casting the show authentically. Um, the path to getting there was um, not a fight that I had with anybody. You know, the show was picked up and the first thing I said to Amazon was, I want to try to cast it authentically. And they said, yes. It, what, you know, I honestly, they were, they were, they were right there with me. That's different than it would have been when I did Parenthood. I, I would do want to talk about casting, but I want to go back for a second because, um, Robin, one of the things with the Black Lady Sketch Show is that obviously it's sketch, so there's so many jokes peppered in to sometimes three minutes. But then there's also so much commentary and so many things that some audience members may be learning for the first time. Um, and I'm curious if that's something that you had to explain in those early days of the show to your executives. Like, we're really telling a story about marginalization, but we're doing it this way. You know what's interesting? Um, first of all, thanks for being here, guys. How you doing? She's so much nicer hey, than me. Who's from Cincinnati? Oh, Where'd y'all come from? <laughs> all right, so, yeah, I think... <laughs> I, I just do that just to mess with Danielle. Okay, so I think that... It's fine, Keisha can come out. I'm Keisha, fine, fine. yes, my bad jokes! Fine. Oh my God. What kind of jokes y'all looking for? <laughs> okay, so I think... <laughs> I think for me... It, you know what? It wasn't intentional. So as you know, I came from late night before this, and I was in scripted before, but 
my path had directly come from five years of doing topical news, right? Dealing with Trump as president, Obama's president, then Trump as president, and then I'm just figuring out where the state of the world was going in those five years. So when I created the sketcher, I was like, I really, I don't wanna do anything political, overtly political, right? And I just want to have the political act be the fact that this exists. So with the sketches, I mean, we don't go into the room going, what message can we tell people <laughs> with this? When the lady says, but the tilapias are fine though, right? What are we saying about the state of fish? Um, yeah, we're not really doing that. I think that inherently because black women are politicized and black women are marginalized and black women have a lot of opinions and black women want to be heard and we're, and we're creating these characters and these jokes in really authentic ways, it does end up being a political statement. So no, there was never any pushback, there was never any, but there was also, it was kind of like, HBO and I, my producers were really in line with the fact that we wanted to make something that was unique, that was specific to black women, but universally funny. So we don't explain any of our jokes, as everyone knows. Like, we're not like, this is why this is funny, but, or this is what black women do. But, um, but I think by osmosis, as you watch the show, you inherently come away learning things that you had no idea were a thing, especially about black women's hair, which is always kind of a subject. But I mean, even about point of view, right? And, and different ways people observe the world. So I think that's been one of the really cool things about it. So, I mean, speaking to that messaging, right? Like, all of your shows inherently, as you were just talking about, like, do have some pieces that some people consider political or some sort of special message. Just because we haven't been able to see these characters on TV for so long. And that's unfortunate that, like, you're put in this place of responsibility to kind of have them speak for a large population. I want to... Sorry, I'm distracted. There are lamps with no bulbs. <laughs> That is a shame. What the hell? We don't all have HBO money. Um, so, fair enough. It, first of all, I don't want to put that responsibility on you. I am curious how you discuss that in your own writers' rooms, especially knowing press like me will write these stories about representation and everything. We know that though, right? We know that when we're getting into it. Like, there's no reason we we created these things so people would see them. You know, so I think we all bear the weight of that responsibility. I don't know. I guess it just how how do you guys deal with that? Do you? I mean, do you feel like there's a pressure to it? I mean, I think existing as a native woman in 2022 is like very political. <laughs> like just our existence and our survivance and like being able to have these platforms. I think it inherently comes with a sense of you know, there's so much erasure in our communities that if you have this opportunity, I think whether you like it or not, you happen to be representing. I mean, there are moments where like, you are the only native person a lot of people, as far as they know, think they've seen. Mm -hmm. And so that always comes with, it's, it's, yeah, it's true. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, so there is a responsibility I think that you have. To me, it's about storytelling and telling great stories. And that a lot of those ideas, because I think a lot of times, whenever we are even included in history, there are, you know, even like the concept of like repatriation, the fact that there are a lot of, you know, white owned museums that took a lot of items and stole a lot of items and grave robbed, and now they're in the Smithsonian, now they're in, you know, the British Museum, and what the native nations that want those items back. I think telling a story about how a character that you've grown to love really feels when they see those items yeah. and realize they can't have them and that they're owned by the family of, of their best friend, mm. like, that story, I think, helps you viscerally identify with that experience in a way that me explaining repatriation to you right. doesn't yeah. always work. Right. Um, and so I find that, you know, there's a woman, Crystal Echohawk, who runs a, a think tank called Illuminatives, 
and they hey, and she <laughs> did a huge study that was all data-based on non-native awareness of native people. And really what they found is there is no awareness because there's nothing but erasure in elementary schools and in high schools, curriculum, legislation, in film and television. It was like Parks and Rec and it was mascots. And so really it's like if you have an opportunity to tell your story, I don't think you should be forced to do that. I don't think if you don't do that, you're a bad person. But I think inherently, because there is nothing, any story we tell is educating people about our experiences. And that's why it's so important to have those, like you were saying, like the authenticity, those projects led by people from those communities. Jason, do you want to add anything before I segue? Well, I mean, I guess I just, I mean, I had to, you asked, talked about the responsibility, and I felt like a deep sense of responsibility when I, was took on the story to get it right. You know, I didn't want, and, and to, in order to do that, not only was it casting authentically, we had um, neurodiverse voices in the writer's room, um, on the set, in the production office, in the editing room, all, all throughout the production. It was really, it, that was key to us. As many of our, um, you know, um, you know, department heads too had ex had very personal a very personal connection to it because it was it was the kind of story where, like, like, you know, wardrobe and production design. You know, these were this was a story about three people, nor diverse people who are roommates in an apartment. You know, what their environment was was like had to feel like it was it was real. It was really, what it would look like, and so. Having those partners and telling the story is what, you know, sort of what helped me, you know, most in terms of trying to get it right. Because there's so many, you know, the new TV show, there's like a million details. Yeah. And you want to find partners and you want to find collaborators who are, you know, who, who the story is as personal to them. Yeah, I mean, I think that also, um Speaking to earlier when I said, you know, the responsibility sometimes to represent all because it's the only one show, like that's a lot. And I think that's a, what you were just talking about and like bringing in different voices who have something in common, but all have very individualized perspectives and stories that they can then funnel into the characters, into the shows are super important. And I, I'm wondering, I guess, too, about if there is, if that's, an, if that's an explanation, if that's something that you have to fight for today when you are staffing, or, or do you feel like when you, you know, Sierra, when you said, I want, you know, X amount of Native writers, was that a fight? Did somebody have to say to you, like, why? Like, no. did you have to explain it? No, I mean, to be honest with you, it wasn't a question in the sense that, like, Mike Schur said, how many writers do you want to have? And I was like, 10. He goes, well, five should be Native. I was like, okay, great. But if there was ever any, like, if it was difficult to find them, because we had to, like, go in a community, we had to go on Instagram, we had to, like, find. It wasn't something where you could just, like, call up, you know, agents and managers. They had lists of people, but you had to really go in and find people. But it very much helped to be, to be like, Mike sure said there have to be five, you know? But at the same time, I was, like, so excited to, like, bring in all these, like, new writers. And writers who, like, you know, giving people, sometimes getting your second job is so much harder than getting your first job. And giving people that second job was really wonderful. So, but in a way, that's the most revolutionary thing. Yeah. What you just said is you had to go out and find them. Yeah, yeah. And you they're know? not just there. Like, and, we had to go to, you know, yeah. Right, because now those people are on your show, but now they're part of, of, of they're, now they're storytellers who will go on to tell stories. And that's, you know what I mean? What I found, like, I found, like, you know, we had on our show, we hired a lot of PAs 
um, and a lot of you know sort of people who were just getting introduced to the business who were neurodiverse because we wanted to give those oppor that opportunity. Yeah. And my the one of the things that I'm most proud of in that show is hearing about all of those people who are like, oh, they were the best best people in the department, and they went on to to they are now like going on to other shows and working. Yeah. They wouldn't have had the opportunity. And so the idea that, you know, it, the idea that you have to go out and find them is, you know, is the revolutionary part of it. You know, it's, it's that those people are there and they're as talented as anybody else and it's just about now they have the opportunity. Totally. And like my first job, I was a Disney fellow. I had never worked in television before. I would never done anything. So I remember what that felt like. So I felt like a real responsibility for these new native writers and just new writers to come in and make sure they knew like, this is where stuff is, this is how you do this, this is like what your office is like, blah, blah, blah. And then also wanting to act as though like we are kind of raising up, the. I'm sure you feel the same way, like the next showrunners, right? So by the time you leave this job, because I've had really great bosses like that, where they want you in editing, they want you on set, they want you at a mix and just explaining all this stuff so that they can go and do it on the next show. To me, it's about not being the first. It's about like who's going to be the second, third, fourth. Mm -hmm. And there's so many like native shows coming. I mean, Reservation Dogs is just a revelation. And what's crazy is there's like there's writer crossover. There's a lot of actor crossover, and there's such range. It's such a different show. But both shows are very, very authentically native. Yeah. And I think that's like such a testament to like our storytelling abilities. Yeah. And then Robin, I mean, I would also say for you, like, and this I speak things speaks to the casting as well. I mean, that you have like this bevy of the who's who in a lot of ways. Is, do you find that it's these pe that the people you're bringing on the show, especially in the guest star positions, is this like a chance for them to magically get to do something they've never gotten to do before? Absolutely. Even though they've been, some of them have been working for decades. Like that baffles my mind, but I'm, I feel like that is a big part of how you're able to get so many people maybe? Yeah, 100%, <laughs> it's a huge part. It's the outlet they've been looking for. Our first guest star that we booked before we ever aired was Angela Bassett. Like, she, we sent the sketch to her and we were like, we wrote this for you. And we don't write for a lot of people. We wrote for her, Patti LaBelle, a couple other people. But usually we just focus on character and story and we're like, this is a really good sketch and we'll send it and they want to do it. But um, Angela Bassett said, one, I was a fan of your late night show, but two, more importantly, um, that's not the reason why I'm really doing it. I'm doing it because you asked. No one thinks I can be funny. And I'm like, this Oscar-level actress, like this amazing, like literally one of our greatest actresses, like if you can do that, you can do eight lines of jokes in the Babbage support group. Like, <laughs> and then she got nominated for an Emmy, as she should have, you know? Like, um, yeah, I think that that is a big appeal for people on the show. And it's like, even in some of the smaller parts, I think about Kelly Rowland coming in to do one line in um, our first uh, uh, season as well. And so we've gotten a lot of goodwill, I think, in Hollywood. I've also been in the business, although I'm very young, um, a very long time. And I wrote for a lot of people behind the scenes, like people in the business. You guys didn't see me on screen a lot, really, for a long time, but pe other people <laughs> knew me behind the scenes for like 20 years. So I got to know a lot of people. I wrote for a lot of people. So I had a lot of goodwill. My Rolodex is deep in my phone. So that helped also. But I do think that they truly were just like, wow, this has never been done. Yeah. Like black women have never had a sketch show. That's insane. Like, and uh, what, what we were able to create was something that just feels like a playground, I think, for people. And it's, it's like a half day, a day of work. 
you know, and then you get nominated for an Emmy. Well, Three of our guest stars have been nominated in two seasons, and who knows what's gonna happen this year, so. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, it's crazy. I do think that is attractive, though. Yeah. And in terms of hiring writers, it's the same thing. I mean, it's so funny, people always, people now, this is a show that people steal from, so they come and they go, oh, we need a black woman, let's go just go get one from Black Lady Sketch Show. Because our writers only write 13 weeks, so most of, yeah. most of them are available most of the year, so they don't stay more than one or two seasons because they become much higher up, I mean, they become, co-EPs and showrunners like eat quickly. Um, but also what I'd like to remind people is that so much of what you guys are saying is true, getting people's first writing job or their second writing job, that's so critical in this business. But um, my first writer's room first season was only six people and we had two Emmy nominees, in the, an Emmy winner and an Emmy nominee. So it was like all those people, they had come from The Good Place, they had come from Sam B, they had come from like all these amazing shows, um, but they, where they were one right. of one you know, where they were the only black woman, where they were the only woman, they were the only black person. So when they got together in that room, they were all just like, oh, okay, now we can like let all that go and like make something really great. And I think that really contributed to it. But I'd like to remind people like, it's not that hard to find us. We're here, we are here. Um, every season we get hundreds of submissions for writers, hundreds, and they're good. It's like, I literally am so lucky what I get to choose from. But then I go out to agencies and they're like, yeah, we have like one they're black not woman. Reading hundreds. No, there's no way. No, they, don't have, they don't have hundreds of black women on their roles, on their rosters. Um, and that is wild to me. I am at the biggest agency in town, and I, it's not just them. I'm not shitting yeah. on my yeah. agency alone. I'm shitting on all of them because they need more. Yeah. They need more, and they need them at higher levels. The Writers Guild always publishes a report every year where they're like, black people, great. Black people, people of color, women, they yeah. made big gains in staff writing positions. And then you go even to executive story editor, we're gone. Yeah. We're not there. Do you know how many black women showrunners there are in comedy? I'll clue you in, about four. <laughs> um, no, I think there's maybe 20 of us or something like actively in the business. I mean, it's a very small number considering there are 600 right. shows right. on the air. Um, and just because you're black, also I just want to remind you, doesn't mean you have to only work on a show that's all black people. That's the other thing. <laughs> but I just remind people of that too. We know how to write other things. We were raised in a white American immersion system. Like this is what this country is. Like we know it, we get it. We can write jokes for like a lot of different people, but I do believe in authenticity and I'm glad that more black creators and showrunners um, are able to, you know, do their thing. But it constantly is a thing like, you don't have to train us all up. Right. A lot of us are here and we've been here for decades doing the work. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about because like, as we've said a few times, you know, all of you have long resumes and quality, quality shows on these resumes. So mostly I've got a few that, <laughs> uh, if you want to call them out, you're welcome to, I don't know. Um, but it, when, when someone is, let's say getting into the business now and maybe they have an idea for for you know a show led by a character that has been pushed to the sidelines before or never seen before on TV and they don't have all of this goodwill in Hollywood do you have advice for them as to like how someone to who not wants to give create up? it you said someone who wants to create a yeah, show? Yeah, like someone who's, you know, they have these ideas for these types of shows that really can say something, can yeah. teach a lot about empathy, 
bring characters to the world that we haven't seen before that we're clearly hungry for that are from but a marginalized voice like Glenn. sure yeah like just oh well call my board. production company I we mean, have a deal at uh, Warner Brothers Television <laughs> I would love to make your stories um, because I mean I think it's, no, I think it's, it's, hard, it's hard when you don't, have, you don't have the resume you have to get have. in a room you have to get in a room and I don't care what kind of room it is but you have to get in a writer's room and you have to learn the business I mean I think we all have had to do that um, you you just got to get in there and do the work so you can be a part of the system. Writers rooms are such a sacred, secretive place. Mm. Most people have no idea what goes on in one, except for the privileged few of us who have been in them. So I think you've got to watch people fail, like you've said, and and learn from those mistakes so you don't have to learn. The worst thing to do, honestly, is sell a show having never written on a show. <laughs> really, I think that it's would really actually be the do. worst. Thing I've had to some do. good bosses that did it, but it's it's really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, I think also just like making stuff and putting it in front of people and like you just constantly sharpening your skills and your tools like you know awkward black girl was like a revelation i think for so many marginalized people yeah, yeah and but, but can't use that as an example Issa was lightning in a bottle you know how many youtube oh, series are out there oh no there's a million like, but i feel like we used to tell people that all but the time. i feel like i feel like the the market is gluttoned but i also think though that like if you have this if you are Issa ray and you yeah. believe you are her and you can do it like yeah, i think having it. it i also think too like I it's was, a good calling card too, at least when you get the meeting, right? If you get Even the if, meeting, yeah. you get the thing, or somebody. I mean, I will say like Jana Schmieding, who plays Regan on Rutherford Falls, um, did comedy in New York City for many years and made a bunch of weird short films. She did this incredible video where you know, like when um, unhoused people will be on like the subway and be like, "Hello, my name is blah blah blah, and I'm here, like shaking the can." She did that, but it was to ask for a date. She was like, hi, I'm Janice Schmieding. I have not had a date in five years. Yeah. I just need a man. If you have a cousin, if you have a brother, an old teacher you used to know. And she was so winning, and it was so brave. And I was like, holy fuck, who is this woman? And then she did another character about like a woman who collects like plastic bottles on the street, and it was so funny. And so like that is what tipped her over. So it was her sample, and it was getting three arts and you know having all these things. But at the end of the day, it was like those two oh, videos that I was like, oh, she can also act, we should have her audition, yeah. you know? So you just never know when, I think it's like, it's, it's very hippy-dippy, but I think like putting that energy out and hoping that something kind of catches. Um, Bobby Wilson was a writer on our show who's incredibly funny and plays Wayne, and, and um, his Instagram was just really fucking funny, and my husband was like, what are you laughing at? I was like, just fucking Bobby. And he was like, you should meet with him. He was like, you've laughed more at that Instagram than you have at all these samples yeah. I'm watching you read. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of true. And then I DM'd him, like, do you have a sample? He's like, yeah, it was like a weird play. That and he was no ready, sense. yeah. But he was like ready to go. And yeah. he was trained and, and had done live comedy for many years. And so I do think it's like, you got to like put yourself out there. Yeah. And it's really hard. And you kind of have to not get bitter. You have to find a way to keep that good attitude going. And it's really, it's really hard. Samples is real. People don't have enough samples. Yeah. Like people have old ass samples. And like multiple and like, samples that are like catered to the types of show you're trying to work on. And also that are calling yeah. cards for what you're good at. So like if you're- And your original, right? What's your original idea that you do want to make? Yeah, so what it's like, voice? exactly. So it's like if you are a story person, there should be a lot of twists and turns in that sample. If you're a joke person, there should be like five or six jokes in the first three pages per page sometimes. So you want to really like get it going. And so but you have to be really strategic, I think, what you're trying to make. Like I had to write like a Big Bang sample. I wrote yeah. so, write a Big Bang Theory sample. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wrote so many samples. I how I met your mother, I used to shop yeah. around. <laughs> but it does, I think you just, it's, it's a lot of kind of, the repetition of it makes you stronger. Yeah. And I'm curious because for all of your shows, um, as we've talked about, I mean, like there is very important things being discussed, right? But obviously yours are comedies. You're more of a dramedy, but there's there's so much I think that people are more willing to listen to when there's a little bit of lightness. Um, it, I mean, 
this might be a dumb question for you since you're coming from the comedy world, but is that something that you've had to fight through if you have a story you really want to tell and you just want to tell it straightforward? What a dumb question. <laughs> uh, no, I, well, I don't tell anything straightforward next. I don't, yeah, I don't <laughs> what do you mean to answer that? Straightforward, what do you mean? If you, if you were I saying, I don't message. want to put jokes here, I, I oh. want to just tell this message, or do you feel like I need sometimes the humor oh. to tell this story? Like vegetables snuck in the kind dessert? Of. I think humor is the best way to tell the story, honestly. I, think, I don't think you have to disguise it. For me, anyway, I mean, my humor is very loud, though, so. I don't know. Do you find doing that? Yeah, I mean, we, we do a lot of monologues. Um, Michael Grayeyes does a lot of these monologues on Rutherford Falls, and sometimes he just like breaks it down and just says, like, hey, this is how it works. This is how it is. And we'll add jokes sometimes in there, and there'll be times where we take them out. Like, after the table read, we're like, actually, I don't want to be light there. I want to, like, t Michael has described his character as, like, getting to say the things our parents had to whisper. And so there's a real kind of visceral feeling and like a rallying cry when he does sometimes these monologues about indigenous identity. And then sometimes he's like dressing down like a lawyer and it's all jokes and he's like, right. your children's tennis instructors will feel yeah. the wrath of my <laughs> And it's like, it's, it's still that speech and that cadence, but it's also very funny. So you kind of go back and forth. I think if we can think of a funny way to do it, I think it's great. But there's moments where like Regan literally looks to Nathan and is like, why is your history more important than my history? You know, and I think that's like not a joke, but that's like something we really wanted to say. And I think once you introduce people to like the tonal change and they know that's what to expect, but then I think you can kind of pick your spots. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because as we see it, when I went to pitch it, <clears throat> um, both the comedy people and the drama people were there because they didn't know right. what it was. And I sort of loved that <laughs> because um, it's, it's both things. And I think that you can, um, both things can be contained in a show. And I think when, to me, my favorite thing is when you find yourself um, laughing and almost in the same moment getting very moved by something. And I think that it's no coincidence that that, that humor opens people up and welcomes people in. Um, but one thing that was important for me about the humor in, in, in this show in particular, and as we see it, is that there, were, there was humor, but there were no jokes, you know? Yeah. You can never, it would, I never wanted to be laughing at these characters. It was always like the humor came from who they were and their souls. And that's, what, that's where the humor came from. I wanted to sort of go back to what you were asking about sure. before, because one of the things I want to add about telling your stories and how to do that is that like you're asking, is it hard if you have a story that people might not want and you don't have a lot of experience in the world, in the, in the experience in yet, and you're not a known entity yet. Like the one thing I would say about that is, like you have to write the story that you have to write. There's no, you know, like there's no choice about that. That is, the one thing I can say from doing this from my personal experience and from reading a lot of other writers, is there's nothing more clear that when somebody is writing a story that they have to write, it is better. It is the thing that pops, there's like, there's like, you know, there's hundreds of writers, you're writing, you're reading like tons of things. The thing that's gonna pop is a story that somebody needed to tell. And um, if that story happens to be about an underserved community, about people who haven't been observed, honestly, I think it's even better. I think that's a better calling card. Um, right now, you know, for, for, for you. 
to get in. So I, I mean, my feeling is like I would, yes, all everything that you're saying is so true about like getting in a room, learning the business, doing the specs and all that stuff. <clears throat> but I think really the most important thing is to, you know, um, you know, if you're, if there's a story that you're needing to tell, that you're itching to tell, that you, you know, then that you have to follow that. Yeah, I would say though, if you're white and you're dying to tell a native story, maybe take a beat. <laughs> like I would. <laughs> well, you feel, I mean, I, if you feel super compelled, I would maybe just think about I, it. For like I a do day. think that, that goes back to the authenticity that, that we yeah, were talking about. I think it should about. be like your personal story and compel. I've, I can't tell you how many people I've like. I knew this Ojibwe woman, and like you have to help me make this oh movie. I'm like, no, 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 no. So like, I do think it's like pick your spots. But I agree. Like, I think when you well, feel what, passionate sort of about what something, meant, is what I meant is yes. like the, the story you have to tell is because it's your story. Yes, I think not if it's somebody else's story. story. Exactly. Going back to the the comedy aspect of things, I am. Is there? Do you feel like some of these stories need to be told through comedy in any in any way? Because maybe that is more appealing to an audience, and when I say audience, I mean either the general public or the industry. I think with, with this show, again, every show is its own thing, right? It's its own entity. With this show, I thought like comedy was so important in telling the story because I wanted, the, because I wanted to do a show that was raw, that had raw moments. I wanted to do a show that was gonna show the, hard, the hardest parts of what it's like to be, um, who these people are and the way the world sees them and doesn't see their beauties and all that stuff. And so to me, like, the, you know, having the humor is a way that, you know, allows you to tell all of the story. And of course, you know, there's so much humor that comes from life. So to me, that was like, that was like a really important thing that, because, and because I don't come from the world of comedy, um, although there's a lot of comedy in all shows, in all dramas. Yeah, there are I mean, many, it's many, most Succession dramas. is my favorite comedy. Yeah, I mean, right, right. There's like so much comedy in so many, in so many shows that we talk about as dramas. But because I don't come from that world, it was something that yeah. I was very much like uh, more conscious of than I would normally be. I would also imagine it's opening people's eyes to like what they associate that community as being. Like it also, like I feel like similarly, like native communities, the first thing you don't think of is comedy. Like my dad is Mexican American and when he went to visit my mom's family, he was like, I've never laughed so much and I've never <laughs> seen people laugh so much. And he was like, I had no idea, like that, that just was not what he expected. And I feel like there's they so- They expect you to be depressed. Well, just because you don't know. You well, watch but, Westerns but what, yeah, and you watch people at, who Look at what television yeah, has given still, us. Like as kids, you get asked, you know, were you in Dances with Wolves? No, didn't get picked. Oh um, like, you know, do you live in a teepee? Like, these are these are our reference oh, points. Our reference right. points are hundreds of years ago, and I think with a lot of this, yeah. it's like you 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 assume trauma and you lead with that as a narrative, yeah. and I think that's why like adding comedy to those right. types of stories is like so revolutionary. Right. I mean, one thing I keep saying about this show is there's an 85% unemployment rate for college-educated people on the spectrum. 85% unemployment people, employment rate for people who are college educated, it, it doesn't compute, it doesn't make sense. And now I've had the personal experience hiring people, neurodiverse people, to see that, how wrong that is. And it's just like what you're saying, it's like when you don't understand a community, it's just like the importance of doing the show that you're doing and telling these kinds of stories is, it, it, you don't have to, like you said, you don't have to have a message. You just 
you're just putting it out there in a way that's real. And, and, and that's the biggest it message. It's like, oh, wow, they're just like us. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is true. Some people need that still. So. Oh, totally, totally. And I think, you know, to your point too, I mean, I laugh it off and I'm like, ah, just write poop jokes. But I mean, even <laughs> even on my show, there's a story within a story, right? And there's an, an ongoing narrative. And, and this season really focused on us becoming the best versions of ourselves, right? Obviously, it's comedic, but it also was taken a lot from the Hippolyta episode of Lovecraft Country really affected me. And, like, this black woman, Anjanue Ellis, plays in this show so expertly. Um, but she, that one episode of television, like, changed my life. It changed the way I looked at my life. Being able, she literally was like, oh, now I can just name myself. I'll say who I am. And, like, as a, a black woman, I was like, I have spent a lot of my life being told who I am. And I was like, oh, wow, that was something I never realized that I could actually define who I am when, of course, I've been doing that in my life and my career, but it opened it up. And even in a comedic way, we explored that. And actually, the last, like, 30 seconds of the season finale and season three aren't that funny. They're kind of this moment where these friends are really discovering where they're going, but they know they don't know what's about to happen, but they know they're doing it together, you know? So, yeah, there are some moments where you just get to humanize people who have had their stories told for them, right? right? And that's the power of telling your own story. And, and not telling it through a traumatic event, which I right. think is the other spectrum, right? right. Like, trauma, I, I'm, so, so I'm speaking about comedy because we've all spent decades watching just the trauma porn. Right. Right. Um, I actually want to open it up to audience questions if anybody has one. Hi, Kelly. I don't know everyone's name, don't get excited. I was like, wow, Daniel. <laughs> I thought she you could read your badge from here. Oh, and I was God. like, what kind of glasses are those? <laughs> uh, so I want to talk a little bit about your creative process in, um, in kind of, you know, first page of the script. Uh, one of the hills that I will die on is that Jason Kadams is like the best at introing people into the show. It's like that first three minutes you know exactly where you are, you know exactly who you're gonna be spending the next however many seasons with. And for me as a writer, that's always the most daunting task is that first scene. So I just wanted to talk about, or see if you guys could talk about your creative process and how you introduce this new world to people. Well, we, our scripts are no longer than five pages, so we have to get in there quickly. Yeah. So we start everything with a joke that tells something about the character's game or their conflict or their wants or their needs. But in terms of, but I have a long history in scripted too, so I would just say in traditional scripted, for me, I'm always trying to find out, um, for the studio, they want the hook that's gonna get people to stay the 21 minutes, right? But I think as a creative, as a writer, the way I've always approached it is how can I, explain this world without explaining it. And typically that's through comedy, but what is the example of a conversation I've had? Like I think conversations with my mother or my friends or my family that exemplify the relationship, right? Like what are the things that exemplify it? Um, and just trying to stay away from exposition. I think the best comedy never talks about the thing. It just shows you the thing, right? So I think it's always in those first couple of pages is showing the thing. like and starting in the middle and having people immerse themselves in the world um, as if they've already known it and as if they're already a part of it. I think when you, shows that annoy me are ones that are like, and here is so-and-so walking through the door and I'm the boss. It's like, 
don't do that. You know, like I always think about Golden Girls. They didn't start on the day when they moved in together. That wasn't the pilot. And I don't know if it originally was because they did do a flashback to it in season one, but um, I like that they started, they were already roommates and I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I just knew that these characters, I knew exactly how they related to each other. I knew exactly the conflict and I knew the situation within 30 seconds, you know? So I think that's the thing I always try to do with scripts, with longer form script. Um, really good question. I make a playlist. So I'll pick songs of just like, this is how I want to feel, or this is how I want someone to feel when they watch it. So I'll like find songs and, and kind of make a playlist. And then when I write, just listen to that and only that. Um, go on a lot of walks and stuff um, in terms of like process. Uh, with Rutherford Falls, um, we started on Nathan. So Nathan, like a drop down talking, he's making a speech and it's this like fiery speech about American history and his family and his legacy. It's like to a bunch of kids who don't care, you know? But it was important to us that he was like talking to children and kind of indoctrinating them and, and they have to go on these tours because everyone's had to go on these school tours. And as he takes people through this museum, he has this house that's his family's, it's filled with artifacts. It's just like abundance. And we talked a lot about his being unaware of that abundance, that him thinking all of this stuff is so important, probably isn't much. And then we switch to Regan, where she is making a fiery speech, but it's to no one in a sad casino. And she has a cultural center with like four items that white people immediately start touching and she has to kick them out. And so it's played for comedy, but her, her first line is, you know, the history of indigenous people is the greatest story never told. And that was sort of my thesis for like the pilot. But there's also, you know, the friendship between, and so it was establishing those characters. And then the end of the pilot, you see Terry Thomas make his monologue, which is basically like his thesis for the season. And so that's how we did it. I don't know what I'll do for the next pilot because I can't do that. <laughs> but um, but I think you want to you want to know immediately who these people are and what they want in the most like organic way. It helped that like they were museum people and so much about working at museums was like quickly presenting something you've said a hundred times um, and kind of trying to find the like the truth of their vulnerability and their characters because they're kind of doing it on autopilot. What can slip out or what can be revealed? So there's a lot of like that kind of subtext within the comedy. Um, because at the beginning of the pilot, their friendship is sort of atrophied, and they don't really realize kind of how toxic it is. And then later, they start to really break it down and be truthful with each other. So I always love that when people are kind of, it's a little bit of that like um, waiting for Guffman, <laughs> like you're saying things and you think you're really selling it and you're actually saying the opposite. Um, and I think kind of like really listening to how people talk. So like I'll go to like grocery stores or talk to Uber drivers. I just like the way people actually I think everyone's like really excited to express who they are, weirdly, and it's just kind of finding those moments where they slip up and they actually show who they are. She also didn't waste any time. It was first season or first season was either first episode or second where Janice's character is already dealing with the conundrum of the community thinking that she's selling out or whatever that she's you know she's already living you know straddled across two worlds and like you didn't stray away from that though. You know what I mean? It wasn't like. Aww. No, but that was an yeah, that was yeah. I mean, that was a native writers' room. Like, we had an idea yeah. of what we were going to do that season, and the native writers' room were like, "Well, she has to go into community and like convince the community to like yeah. listen and talk to her." And we're like, "Shit, you're right." And that's also like the scariest thing to do. So we're like, "That's an episode. That's a great episode." And we yeah. we ended up like losing it up to do that one. But yeah, no, I think I think we wanted to talk about everything, and it's like you know, 
thousands of years of indigenous identities and over 500 recognized tribes. So it was a lot in 30 minutes. In 30 minutes. Um, but, but I think it's like the truthfulness of her experience. It also helps to have multiple native characters. I think often it's like that one native character who has to speak for everyone where it was nice. And I think like that's what I love so much about Black Lady Sketcher. Like it reminds me a lot of Kids in the Hall where like you had like five people who are of similar backgrounds, but like so different and so interesting and like comedically have different voices. And I just like love that show so much because it's like an opportunity for four black women to talk to each other, which in sketch comedy never happened. And it's really, it's really amazing. To play aliens. I right? And to do all the things you want to do. Thank you so much. <laughs> and to play men, which I always, that is reluctant by the way. I did not get on HBO to play men. You did this to yourself. I did. I did it to myself. Anybody can play a man. You're the boss. I know. That's true. Just you're everyone right. has to. Okay. You're right. I actually want to go back because that question reminded me uh, of something we were talking about in the beginning. Um, and this is a little bit more, it's not just about getting into the character, but it's really about getting into the show. Um, I'm, you know, there was, these shows have probably been rattling around in your heads for a long time. At what point did you actually say, Bye. I want to start, <laughs> I want to start pitching you. them? And if you, and if you did pitch them earlier, then we've seen Leave them my make fucking it. Panel early. I mean, I'm not letting this stop me. Um, if you did actually pitch them earlier, then we've seen them get made. Can you share some of the feedback that came from why they didn't get made in the beginning? I'm, I'm curious the trajectory of. You know, if maybe the I knew industry I wasn't pitch. ready for yeah, some of these I, until now. Totally. I, I knew I couldn't make this show until I sold it in 2018. Um, I, this is my seventh sketch show, but the first one I created. And I got to learn under six men who did incredible things that were on very short amount of times or never made it to air. The six were the ones that made it to air. And they were huge comedians. Um, Jamie Foxx and Ted Danson and you know all these all these um, David Allen Greer and all these people who I got to work with um, But I got to learn from that and I was like wow, this is wild No one's gonna buy this sketch I want to make but I've been performing for decades with black lady sketch groups at UCB at Second City at IO and so I just wanted to stop doing it in the small stages and I wanted to bring it to TV so I think the timing had to be right in order for me to like as a performer be somewhere in my career. I don't think if I wasn't on camera and known for what I do, that this show could have been made. And that's unfortunate because there are literally 50 other, 100 other black women who could have made this show and done it, run circles around what I do. So it's why I call it a black lady sketch show, not the, because it, in my mind, I'm hoping it's just one of many. Um, and it's just one, it's just one. It's not the, it's not the representative, you know. Um, although it kind of is right now. Oh, it's not though. It's not. We have like Z-Way, We have Amber Ruffin. Right. We have like Sam J. A little like, bit different in terms yeah, of different. what kinds of sketches. But yeah, yeah. we're getting there. We're, we're getting, getting there. Baby steps. <laughs> How about you? Did you? Were you both uh, these these stories rattling around for a long time? Pitched them before, and they didn't necessarily. This, this particular show. Yeah. As we see it specifically. Well, you know, I no. It, yes, the, as I said, it was kind of like the idea of. Adult, you know, autism in adulthood was something that I was like, well, that's, um, I don't see that. You know, there's a lot about childhood, what the, but those people grow up. But as I, was, as I said before, it was because I was literally, you know, in, in the, going through that um, with my son and I was thinking about it. So I was thinking about it a lot and didn't know that it was a show. Then there was, I saw the, an Israeli television show that was 
this show was based on that was really beautiful. And um, when I saw it, I was like, it was a eureka moment. I was like, this is what I have to do. And had I let myself think about it logically, I would have stopped myself. Because it, it wasn't like, you know, a three people in an apartment where nothing happens is not necessarily like a great pitch. Like, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know, and it was very important that nothing, ha not that nothing yeah. happens, but, but they don't, tragic, they don't get it, yeah. it doesn't magic, they don't magically transform. Right. They don't, you know, their lives don't, they don't, you know, they don't get fixed. You know what I mean? It was right. like, that was very important about the show, and I had to, in the pitch, pitch it that way because I couldn't pitch something else and then set up an expectation that wasn't going to happen. So I had to rely on this. For me, it was like I had to rely on this was um, something that was resonating with, with me so deeply that I was going to find somebody yeah. that was going to yeah. champion it. And that's, that's kind of what I did. But it wasn't like a logical, it wasn't like, okay, I have the show, I have the, I have the pitch. It wasn't that kind of show. It had to, it was, yeah, yeah. And Sierra, I mean, you had said, obviously, that Mike and Ed kind of came with like half an idea. But I feel like you probably had ideas for a show in your culture for years. Had you, what was your experience trying to get anybody to listen to that? I don't know. I mean, I, I had a sample when I first started um, called Trading Posts, which was about two sisters running a trading post on the Navajo Nations based on like my family. Um, and everyone would say like, oh, this is such a good sample. It'll never be made, but like great sample. And I was like, cool, 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 you know? And yeah, and like for the first few years, I mean, you know, people don't remember 2010, like it was rough out there in terms of representation and, and, and writer's room dynamics. And it was a huge deal to have two women. They'd be oh, like, yeah. two women, can you imagine? Yeah. Like, it was such a crazy time, and so. In 2010, I was in a writer's room being referred to as the girl writer. Right. I wasn't it's called the Robin. Girl writer. Yeah, no. They'd be like, let's ask the girl writer what she thinks. Yeah, and I was lucky on Happy Endings, the, the, sh the show creator was his first job on television. So he just hired the people he liked and kind of, so there was like four, four women on the show, which was like unheard of. Everyone was like freaked out by it. And, and so, yeah, so it was, that was just kind of a given. And then I will say, I think when Transparent and Pose came out, I remember looking up the demographics of like the population of trans people in the United States, and it was similar to the population of Native people. And I was like, holy shit, this could happen. Like, we could actually have a show. And I got like really excited, and people were, you know, so you just felt these sort of like cracks. And then I think watching Insecure, like watching that pilot really changed my life. Because knowing Prentice and knowing the stories he was trying to make, having followed Israel's career, and just being like, okay, like awkward black girl, like this is someone who is not, who's representing a portion of community that that mainstream white America never never rewards, never is interested in, and is just freaking nailing it and doing like amazing work and stuff. And so I think, um, I worked on a show for many years and enjoyed it, but it was really, it was getting harder and harder to write in other people's voices, especially white people's voices. And so I quit and I took a break. I took like a, I was gonna take a year off and I was gonna write this pilot and I was gonna like, you know, and then I didn't know what it was gonna be, but I was kind of like, I need to stop writing for other people for a while and figure out what I wanna do. And then I got this call from my shirt hounds and they said like, hey, we wanna do this thing. We don't totally know what it is. And they were so giving and so kind and really, like, I was like, she should be Native, she shouldn't be Asian, and there should be another character, there should be a, 10 Native characters, da, da, da. and I was, like, just regurgitating, you know, decades of working in museums, and, and, and they were like, yeah, let's do all that, let's do that. And so I really was, like, at the right place at the right time. 
but but I'm excited for like my next project. I'm developing a couple of ideas this year that are native, and, and I'm really excited for like the next the next one. Yeah. All right. Does anyone else want to ask? Um, so I just am curious. You, I know, Robin. You have a sketch on your series where they talk about the re their representation, and then they kind of like backfire their own representation. Oh yeah, the the um, market research. Group. Yeah, market yeah, yeah, yeah. Research. Um, Melissa Villasenor did a skit recently on SNL where she got a lot. of Hi, Melissa Villasenor. <laughs> I do an impression of her. It's bad. Um, Go ahead. Where she got a lot of bad her. feedback about doing her own representation, and so she kind of like came out and was like, you know, this is my story of where I grew up, and so oh. I just was curious if you I don't know anything about that. It was on Twitter. Okay, so. all right. Um, I just love her, but that's my only comment about that. This is the Chola uh, sketch? Yeah, so I'm just, huh? The Chola sketch? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see it, okay. Yeah. And so I'm just curious if you guys deal with like that same kind of pushback from your communities of how you represent those characters, like especially on- A uh, fucking so. course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, have you heard of Black Twitter? <laughs> Don't worry if you don't know how to find it. It's honestly a rabbit hole you don't want to go down. Um, yeah, of course. That's a great question. Yeah, of course. Yes, of course. When you're always, when you're representing a community, even though that's why I say A black, I'm just A, I'm just A. And people are like, but bitch, you are the, because it's the one on TV. But um, until there are others, um, yeah, you're seen as the representative and there's a lot of pressure to represent the whole. And the truth is, there are awkward black girls, there are cool black girls, there's Meg the Stallion, but there's also like, you know, sci-fi, techie black girls. Like, so I think it is really difficult because we cannot represent, um, we're not a monolith and we can't represent the whole group. So while there is so much more support than not, um, there are people who definitely are like, this is not my cup of tea and that's okay. There, then there are people who just like, I don't like sketch or, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I think, that's all of TV, but yes, I do think there is an added pressure when you are representing a group of people who have not traditionally been represented, and when you're the first to do something, it's tough. It's tough. Um, I think the only way to combat that is to know that it's your job to hire as many different types of people as you can, and I'm very, very committed to doing that, um, and we continue to do so on the show. And that's the only way I can try and do it is just to keep the POV wider and wider and invite different voices. And I'm excited for season four. We have some new really exciting writers um, coming to add to our vets. And that's all you can do. But it is tough. It is tough. And the burden of that, right? Like, you're already making television in a pandemic. You're already making television as a woman of color. You're already making television in sketch. Like, you know, for me specifically. It's a very, like... <laughs> thin needle to thread. So to do that and to do that successfully is really difficult. So I just have to remind my cast, my writers, my crew that like what we are doing is unprecedented. So if they ever get any negative feedback, which again, 99% of it is very, very positive, but it's always that 1% that hurts and you don't want to harm your community in any way, in any way. Um, so yeah, you have to really think about it. And we talk about it in the room. You know, it's like, well, how... We, like for us, this is the last thing I'll say, is that even for like how we represent black men, right? Like even when I am playing men or whatever, I wanna be really careful that the swath of black men on the show are not portrayed as like fuck boys or like raggedy or whatever because although it's funny to play Chris on the show, every black man can't be represented that way because that's not the message we're trying to send. We're not trying to say that. Like we definitely don't wanna harm anyone else in the celebration of us. Yeah. 
So yeah, it's something we definitely think about and want to be true to. The crab bucket metaphor in Rutherford Falls felt like a very vulnerable moment, and it, I think it kind of pays back, feedbacks off of previous question. Like, did, were you really worried about putting that into the show, and like, and talking about how communities sometimes don't lift each other up, and you're just you're keeping people or the crabs in the bucket. You guys know what crabs in a bucket is? Yeah, yeah crab bucket. Okay, yeah. So, um, do you know what crabs in a bucket is? Okay, so yeah, okay. So this was the thing. So crabs in a bucket is when you have a bucket of crabs, you never have to put a top on it because once a crab crawls out, another will pull them back down. And a lot of like communities of color and marginalized communities have that where as someone rises, someone else in the community will pull them down and it's just a product of racism and you know all the bad stuff. Um, and so when we were in the room, it was a concept that the writers of color and the native writers would talk about. And like Mike, sure, didn't know what crabs in a bucket was. <laughs> And he was like, what is that? And we we're like trying to explain it to him because a lot of the storylines I would be explaining to Mike and Ed and he, they were like, well, she's going to school to help her community. So when she goes back, she'll be like, welcomed. And I was no. like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. Um, so she can tell everyone what to do? No, it's a nightmare. And so, so we were trying to explain that to them. And then we were explaining the situation, different things. And Mike was like, it's people from Boston. I was like, that's exactly it. That's what it is. And once he got it, yeah. you know, he got it. And Ed, yeah. and multiple times there'd be situations as like, is that crab in a bucket? I'm like, no, Ed, that's not no. crab. It's okay. Well, we'll let you know when it's what's happening. And so, but I that, say crabs in a barrel. Crabs Same in a barrel, thing. bucket crabs. There's yeah. all these different terms for it. So what we, what we were talking about was like the the love we have for our community, and also the more you ingratiate yourself in community, the more you have to like be able to handle. Um, different sort of yeah. conflicts and situations, and that's part of it. There's no like sort of idealized version of being a part of your community and championing it. And so we were like, that is an important part of of her process and like overcoming that because you have to make stuff in the face of criticism, and and that's part of what this is. That it's not it's not about denying it and the existence of it. It's about processing and going through it. And so we were nervous. I mean, we were like the first on the beach, and we were very worried. And luckily. People really liked the show. Indian Country had a lot of love for the show. Not everyone loved it. There was like a lot of criticism about, you know, the way that we made it and, and including, you know, white characters and this, that, and the other. But for me, I was like, what a blessing to have something to bitch about. <laughs> like yeah. the fact that the show even exists to complain and to criticize. I was like, yes, do it. Like hold us to task and, and, and the next one will be different and we're gonna get more and more and more. And and there's no perfect show, like you said, because we're not a monolith. But like, you know. Sterling and I were talking, uh, who showed on this Reservation Dogs, and he was like, our kids have two Native American I mean, shows. it's wild. <laughs> like, like, they'll never know a world in which there isn't Native television. Yeah. So I, I, we wanted to talk about it because it was a running joke of like, oh, once we get dragged and we get canceled, like, it'll be fun when you get canceled. But in talking about it, I feel like weirdly people like acknowledge like, oh my God, they really are talking about the, the different types of, you know, it's the nuance. The nuance of being in community. And, and being like, the accomplished one, but feeling pulled, feeling judged by your own community when what you're doing is for your community. Right, and I think that being, if you had a show about Native people made by white people, they would champion that like educated Native and they'd be like the good one and like the, the reservation would be bad. And I think when you have Native writers in the room, it's like, no, those, those people in community have expectations and that's rules you have to follow and that's like fire you have to go through and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's why people bonded with the show is because we were never punching down. We were always in on the joke, like you were saying on your show, and it was important to include community and not villainize community. Again, it's authentic. I mean, it's inspiring conversation. 
And I, again, want to just say they're all groundbreaking shows. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you all. And thank, thank you, you for your questions. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.